Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that your love will be deep in our hearts, but that it will be a sincere love that will drive us to love others as you have loved us. So we open your word. I pray that you'll teach us that. In your name we pray. Amen. I noticed that one of the kids left me. A little Hershey kiss, Frank. I'm going to give this to you if you don't mind. You can do like my kids do when no one's looking. You can sneak it into your mouth and... I won't tell anybody if I see you do it. One of our members, people keep me on task here, reminded me that on our profession of faith, we actually need to uh, acknowledge. They, they want to join the church. We need to say, yes, we accept them into church. So Aaron, Pavel, and Karen, we accept them all into church, right? Amen? Amen. I guess it's now official. Now we really won't lose your names, and uh, we'll make sure that we have record of you all. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philemon. It's just after the T's. It's page 1364 in your pew Bibles. It's kind of hard to find. It's after the T brothers, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. That's how I remember things. If you can't remember where things are in the Bible, just come up with little things like uh, 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 Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, I think Go eat pizza, Chad. That's, that's, how I, that's how I remember where those are at. Then, then there's the T brothers, Timothy, or Thessalonians, Timothy, and then Titus. And then I know Hebrews is next. But wait, there's something between. I always remember that. There's something between. Oh, it's that little one-page book, Philemon. So go to Philemon and let us read this together. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you may have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints, that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father, I became, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. 
Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. I am hoping that through your prayers, I will, grac- I will be graciously given to you. Epiphas, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in, be with your spirit. There you have it, the third shortest book in the Bible, 445 words in the English, 335 words in the original Greek, only 25 verses. This was not a letter to a church. Yes, Paul acknowledges Philemon's likely wife and son, Apphia and Archippus, and Paul sends greetings to the church that meets there in their house But this is not a corporate letter. This is a letter from one friend to another. One friend addressing another. It is a personal letter. To neatly summarize this personal letter that we just read, there is a slave by the name of Onesimus. He has run away from his owner, who is Philemon. Most scholars believe that when he ran away, in some way he probably deprived his owner of something, likely money or maybe just simply because he was not there to work, it, it deprived him from earning a living. Verse 18 is where they get this. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Paul says, charge that to my account. Somehow in the course of this running away, Onesimus has become connected, has become connected with Paul who is a prisoner in Rome. And through this connection, Onesimus has come to accept Jesus. And through this new relationship with Christ, Onesimus, whether through the encouragement of Paul or, or the own conviction that came upon his heart, he feels the need to go back, to go back to his master and to make things right. It just so happens that this master is also a friend of Paul's, and so Paul decides to write a letter to encourage uh, Philemon, Philemon to receive Onesimus back with grace, to be forgiving towards him. Paul reminds uh, Philemon that just like his slave Onesimus, that he too owes Paul his very life. Paul is the spiritual father of both Onesimus and of Philemon. And thus, this is why Paul feels it is his right to appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back under this banner of grace. There are a couple directions that we could approach this book from, a couple ways that we could look at this, at this very short letter in our, in our study. It could serve as a lesson. This book could serve as a lesson in how to approach difficult situations with tact. Paul does a, Paul does a very good job of walking a, a tender line. This would have been a tender issue in that day. It's a tender issue in some parts of the world in this day, and it's been a tender issue in the history of, of our world and of our nation and even of our church. But Paul does a good line of walking a very, a very uh, 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 walking a, the line deftly on this very tender subject. We could also look at it from the angle of what this says about slavery. This letter brings to the forefront the issues of slavery, and we could have a lengthy discussion on slavery, and it could remind us even that slavery, while we think of it as dead because it no longer is out there in public quite as it was, it still very much is alive. I even read some commentators who, who uh, were addressing people's concern or frustration 
with Paul of his seeming acceptance and a word they even use of endorsement of slavery. I actually don't see that anywhere in that book. I, in fact, see the exact opposite. Paul, through, through the precision of his words and the, and the context of a, his appeal, places slavery in an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery ultimately has no choice but to wilt and to die. In verse 15, For this perhaps is why he was parted for, from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or as a slave, but more than a slave, more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But now, he says to Philemon, how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. There is no language there that I would, that I would perceive, that I would perceive uh, creates an environment in which slavery can still exist. In fact, Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I believe uh, Philemon would have read between the lines, as do I, that the even more that Paul is speaking of is to be released, to release Onesimus from bondage. What else could it be? Paul said, receive him back, withhold punishment, treat him no longer as a slave. And then he says, and I know you will do even more. What, what could the even more be other than to release him from his captivity? But the theme that I want to focus on is an aspect of the gospel. The gospel is actually very rich in this book. You see in the 335 Greek words or in the 445 English words, this personal letter to Philemon is the gospel. It speaks of, of failure, Onesimus stealing something and, and running away, the need for intercession, Paul uh, writing on Onesimus' behalf, him interceding for Onesimus to his friend Philemon. Returning to the master, it, it, it's a picture of someone returning to the master. It's, it's a picture of propitiation, one who, who owes nothing. Paul says, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. One who owes nothing, being willing to pay back the debt. It speaks of forgiveness and restoration. And the even more seems to be a promise of a blessing beyond what we can imagine. That is the gospel. And we could, we could look at this book and see allegorically uh, how it's a relation to Christ and us. But I see another aspect of the gospel. When I read the book of, of Philemon, when I read this personal letter to, to Philemon from his friend Paul, if I'm not trying to mine for some deep theological uh, truth, or I'm not maybe digging for the very social justice issue, but rather if I just read this book from a relational perspective, in the letter to Philemon, we can see that the Bible is just, it, the, what the, the Bible teaches that getting relationships right with our fellow believers is just as important as getting doctrine right in our own lives. This isn't a new insight to us. This is something that, that is old to us, the idea that we should live at one with our brothers. This is, this is a familiar issue that's taught throughout Scripture. If you turn to the book of Luke, chapter 10, there's a very famous, of course, parable that Jesus shares and story. We believe it's more than just a parable, but it was actually a true story that Jesus shares. In Luke chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going by, going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the 
other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer, of course, answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The Holy Spirit here through Jesus and, and through the inspiration of, in the book of Luke paints a picture, paints a picture of the idea that, that when we live in the light of the gospel, that, that our relationship to our fellow man should change. How we view and how we act towards our fellow man should transition. The Holy Spirit in his letter to Philemon, like Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, is teaching us that living in light of the gospel is about more than just being straight on doctrine. It is being straight in how we live in relationship with one another and how we treat one another. If, you are, if we are genuine disciples of Christ, we will relate to our fellow believers with grace with forgiveness, and with encouragement. Paul, in the letter to Philemon, is modeling this very behavior. In his letter to Philemon, he's modeling this very, this, very, this very behavior. He says, you know what, I could force you to do this, but I'm going to appeal to you out of love. He says to him, he, he, he encourages uh, uh, Philemon. He doesn't just criticize him and say, why do you have slaves or why are you doing this? No, he affirms him. He says, you've been doing a great work for the Lord and I want to affirm your great work for the Lord. He, he shows kindness and compassion towards Philemon. He says, for this is perhaps why he was departed from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and and in the Lord. That is not the language of having a nice slave and slave owner relationship. I love history and I read quite a bit of history and my favorite time period is the time period prior to the Civil War and, and post-Civil War, the, the Civil War time and then post-Civil War, the, the recovery after the Civil War. And, and, and I love to read uh, these stories and the various things of history and much of the history you read from that time, there are a number of stories about slave masters who actually treated their slaves with quite a bit of love and care. People that, that, that were kind and, and courteous, they didn't beat their slaves and they didn't, they didn't uh, sell their slaves unnecessarily. I just finished a book uh, uh, by Ron Chernow on the life of George Washington and I just finished that book recently and in there it talks about how, how, how George Washington always tried to make sure that he didn't split up families when he would sell his slaves. So he would sell them together and they're affirming his kindness. But here's the fact of the matter, folks, is even in this kindness, they were still slaves. They were still slaves. There was still this, this ownership issue. There was still this relationship. And, and so the language here that Paul writes is not about having a nice slave and owner relationship. When I sell you, I'll sell you with all your family. 
Paul is saying, you're both believers. You've both been incorporated into the body of Christ. Your relationship, therefore, should now be conducted as such. The, the slave and slave master scenario should shift. This relationship should be altered. And why should it be altered? He says, because you are both children of God. What would this mean for Philemon to, to have this relationship altered? Well, it means his individualistic ideas and ambitions must become secondary. What may be important to him and what's important within his cultural construct has to be put aside for, for what is the greater cause of the gospel. It means that, that, that Philemon must now see Onesimus not as a slave and valuable as a slave, but valuable in the participation of the larger work of service to Jesus Christ. It means that Philemon must now surrender his pride and learn to forgive. Because truly, in his mind and in the mind of that culture, he has been wronged. And even that is what Paul is saying. Receive him back now as a brother. In other words, be forgiving towards him. You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote that we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. Isn't that true? We all believe that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. Paul is calling on Onesimus or on Philemon to practice this forgiveness. Folk, this letter of gospel is a letter of gospel living. One that we forget and one the world forgets on a regular basis, unfortunately. How do I know this? How do I know this? Well, I think about right now that in, the, in, in one part of our world, right now many of our leaders, our world leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, are in Rwanda doing evangelism. Our, our world uh, church president, Ted Wilson, is there. Uh, Andrew McChesney, who we voted into membership, is there. They had a bunch of baptisms on the Sabbath. I saw a picture of 320-some people getting baptized. They're estimating, as a result of, of, this, of this campaign, this evangelistic thrust there, that there will be more than 100,000 baptisms over the expanse of that country. Can we say amen to that? We praise the Lord for that. And guess what else I praise the Lord for? I praise the Lord for when we, in a very short matter of time, have 100,000 baptisms in Montgomery County. Can we say amen to that? wasn't quite as strong as the first amen. We'll pray for some of you. We, hey, if it can fall in Africa, if Pentecost can fall in Jerusalem and in Africa, there is no reason why it should not be able to fall in Montgomery County, right? I mean, all of us, if we just reach one person this year, we'll, uh, we'll have at least 700 or so right off the bat there. But over the course of this, this thing, they're expecting 100,000 in baptism. This is amazing this is amazing, not just because of the numbers, though. It's amazing considering that within my recent remembrance and within many of your recent remembrance, this country was in absolute turmoil. You may remember that back in 1994, over the course of 100 days, over the course of 100 days, between 800,000 and 1 million Tutsis and some moderate Hutus were slaughtered in a Rwandan genocide. You may recall that endeavor that was that's within many of our most of our in here lifetime i mean that's amazing and now there's this baptism going on 
The, story that, the stories that came out of that genocide were horrific, and they impacted every church, including the Seventh-day Adventist church, folks. We were not free of guilt in that endeavor. And what is, so horrific, what is even more horrific, though, to me is that almost 100% of those doing the slaughtering were people that claimed to be Christians. And the people they were slaughtering were also people that claimed to be Christians. In fact, at the time of the the genocide there in Rwanda, 90% of the population professed belief in Christ. So this was one group of Christians slaughtering another group of Christians. How could this be? How could this happen? Well, unfortunately, Christianity is sometimes taught in such a way that the gospel is only about having a right relationship with God. In other words, I say I love God and I believe God loves me, but not necessarily recognizing that that should change our relationship with one another. In other words, this type of gospel, this type of Christianity says, I can love Jesus and still hate you. I can love Jesus and still hate you. And let's face it, this is what this is what has happened in every Christian propagated genocide over the centuries. Every hate-filled genocide that has been done by Christians and led by Christians, even in the slaughtering of other believers or non-believers, is done because people somehow have believed in their mind that I can say I love Jesus and still hate someone else around me. That is how the great moral stain of slavery was embraced and justified so strongly in our nation for so many years, in our Christian nation. It is how preachers could speak of segregated bathrooms and endorse segregated bathrooms and segregated schools in the 60s over the color of a person's skin. If we if we're really want to get close to home, it's, it's how... When this church was founded, this church that we are in now, it's how when this church was founded, invitations were given to all the community except for the houses that were marked colored. Because somehow within even Christian lives, there's this idea that, well, I can love God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to embrace everyone around me. Let's be honest, this is why churches split over the color of carpet or the style of music. Because my ideas supersede my interaction with another. This is why we can worship in the same building, in the same room, with fellow believers, and have a critical spirit towards many of those same people. Why we can speak of many of those same people with disdain even while we are simultaneously worshiping the same God with them. Because we've somehow allowed this fake Christianity that says, I can love God, but I can still hate you as an acceptable form of Christianity. Let me be even more honest. It's why we as a staff sometimes come across those anonymous connection cards that come across our desk with very hateful things. Because some people read portions of Scripture And they think that in their minds, it's okay. As long as I say I have a right relationship with God, 
It doesn't have to affect my relationship with others. But Philemon, in the book of Philemon, Paul is very clear that the gospel not only is to change how we feel towards God, but it is also to change and impact the way we feel about one another and how we act towards one another. This very short, simple, personal letter to Philemon tells me and it tells us that we must change how we treat other people. Dorothy Day, in, in Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he quotes Dorothy Day. And Dorothy Day made this statement, which is a very profound and, and, and intense statement. She said, I only love God as much as the person I love the least. I only love God as much as the person I love the least. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John. Just before 2nd and 3rd John and Jude and Revelation. So if you go to Revelation and then you start to go backwards, you'll get there. 1 John. Chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 7 says this in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, that's the believers, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves, that's speaking of loving one another, has been born of God and knows God. So the opposite of this would then be saying, the scripture would then be telling us that if I don't love my fellow man, if I don't love my fellow believers, if I think it's okay to treat my fellow believers in a way that is less than Jesus would treat them or, or, or in a degrading way, the scripture is telling us, the scripture is telling us that we then do not truly know God and we have not truly been, to use the evangelical term, born again. We have not truly been born again. Jump down to verse 13. For this, by this we know that we abide in him and him in us because he has given us his spirit. Verse 12 actually. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfect in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. How do I know if God abides in me? How do I feel towards my fellow believers? How do I treat my fellow believers? I mean, we're even supposed to love our enemies. We struggle sometimes with loving our fellow believers. We're even supposed to love our enemies. Verse 19 of chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, listen to this language, he is or she is a liar. A strong language from our Lord. Anyone who says they love God but hates his brother or sister, he or she is a liar. A liar. That means for those who say, I can love Jesus and still hate my brother and sister, their statement of love towards Jesus, the Bible says, 
is a lie. It's not true. The Bible then goes on to say, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Must also love his brother. The only real gospel, folks, the only real gospel is a gospel that changes my feelings and my actions towards my fellow believer. The only real gospel is a gospel that changes your actions and your feelings towards your fellow man. Everything else is fake. It's a fake gospel. Only real Christianity is a Christianity that is manifested in love towards one another. If I sit in the pew and have disdain for someone else in this room, then I am embracing a fake Christianity, a fake Christianity, a fake gospel. Anyone who does not know, does not love, does not know God because God is love. I think of the story of Philemon and Onesimus, and we oftentimes think of it from the perspective of Philemon. Philemon is being asked to forgive and to love this slave. But I begin to think about it, and I think that what Onesimus is doing is actually much more difficult than what Philemon is doing. Because Onesimus has been the slave. He's been the one that has been wronged. He's been the one that has been persecuted. I think about in our modern world, I mean, we can't really understand this, this, this slavery thing because none of us have been actual, or probably none of us have been actual slaves. But I think in our modern world, of all the divorces that have happened, and the reason people have gotten divorced is they said, you know what, my wife or my husband, they were just too controlling. Anyone ever heard something like that? You're just too controlling. You don't want to raise your hands? Okay, you've never heard it. I've only heard it. They're just too controlling. We have divorces that happen. Imagine being not only controlled, but owned by another human being. It was a huge act for Philemon to forgive Onesimus within the culture that they're in. But what even a greater act of Onesimus to love and forgive Philemon who had owned him as another human being. If we do not have love, we do not know God. It's that simple. And that is the only real gospel. And that is the only real Christianity. And anything that says otherwise is a lie, according to 1 John. Folks, let us be a people. Let us be a people that have the love of Jesus so deeply in our hearts that we cannot do anything else but love our fellow man. Even those that have wronged, even those that have hurt us, even those that we disagree with on carpet color or on music or on things that really matter in life. Let us pray. Jesus, I pray that we'll have your love in us. Lord, if there's anything in my heart that keeps me from loving one of these people, Lord, I pray that you will remove that from my heart so that I can too can be loving as you've called me to love. 
or there's someone in here that has some, some anger, some disdain for another person. Lord, I pray that you'll put such your love so deep in them that it will transform them, that, that the gospel will tell them that not only do I want to change how you feel about me, but I want to change how you feel about your fellow man. Lord, we're not talking here about putting ourselves in a position to be hurt or to be wounded or to be physically in harm's way, but we're talking about what's in our heart, how we speak of others and how we care for others. Lord, may we be loving as you are loving towards us. In your name we pray, amen.